If you would please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at the qualifications of the elder this morning. Titus in the first chapter. You know the five T's are right there together in the uh, in your Bibles. If you find one, you can find the other. The T's: First, Second Thessalonians, First, Second Timothy, and then Titus. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word of this morning? Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And this is not a hope like a hope it rains because we need some rain, but it's a confidence, the certainty of it. And again, he enforces it by saying, God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me as I try to preach this text. I did listen to uh, Alistair Begg's sermon on it and um, Jeff Thomas' sermon on it. Alistair Begg started out by saying he preferred not to preach the text. It's in the Bible. That's what you're supposed to do. And he did. He just always, as always, he did a fine job. So let's pray. Ask uh, God to bless us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, I confess my own uh, insufficiency uh, to accomplish the task that is before me. Lord, I know I am not much. But Christ is all. And do pray, O God, for your grace as I would preach this text. Pray for the people as they listen. ask you to bring this word to bear upon us for change. And pray that our Savior might be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine a society without any law, without any honor, without any conscience. No protection, no help, no solid rock to stand upon so far as a law to govern the people. 
as you know, protests had occupied a six-block area uh, in, uh, in a certain portion of uh, uh, Seattle some time ago. It was called an autonomous zone. They called it CHAZ. And there were no policemen there. The policemen had deserted their precinct. And there was havoc everywhere. There was disorder everywhere. And if I may read to you what happened, encampments overtaking the sidewalks, roving bands of mass protesters smashing windows and looting, and men welding guns, haranguing customers. On June 13th, Black Lives Matter protesters negotiated with local officials about leaving the zone. The Capitol Hill organized protester chops uh, decreased four days later, and it continued to shrink after shootings in the zone on June 20. 21st and 22nd, when there is no law to govern, bedlam is the results. Well, God has established rulers in the church. A church without rulers is a church that is going to have bedlam. And God, in his wisdom, has given us officers to rule and to govern and to guide. In the Presbyterian Church, as Charles mentioned a moment ago, there are two orders of elders. One's the preaching elder, ordained in word and sacraments. That is the position that I hold, and uh, therefore I can marry people uh, by the laws of the state. Uh, the ruling elders cannot do that. Uh, but there still is it an office, and there are guidelines given to us in the Word of God for the governing of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as we go about our lives in the church, we recognize that we are not autonomous. If I may read to you from the Westminster Confession, chapter 23, verse 1. I'm sorry. I'm going to skip that. God's law has universal authority. It's not just for those who are in the church. It's not just for those who are believers. The law of God is universal law, and therefore all people are going to come under judgment by the law that God has given to us. Uh, it is uh, that God in his wisdom has given laws to direct us so that we may have peace in our lives, so that we may have peace in the church. Remember in the book of Timothy where Paul tells Timothy and those who are going to be recipients of the letter or hear the letter to be in prayer for those in authority over them, for kings and so forth. Why? He says that you may live quiet and peaceful lives for the spread of, for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, last week we looked at three things, the preaching of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the priority of the gospel. We are going to look more in detail this morning at the work of the elders. With the preaching of the gospel, we saw that the gospel brings radical changes. Where one goes from being a non-believer, one goes from being at odds with God, to being a child of God. That's the effect of the proclamation of the word when God's spirit applies that word to us. When our eyes are opened by God's grace and we come to God in faith and repentance through the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that Crete was a very pagan place, uh, and it would stand to reason, for the gospel had never been there. So Paul goes 
after his first prison, uh, being released from prison the first time, we know this is not recorded for us in Acts, but we know that he went there. He tells us, and a man is converted under his ministry, a man by the name of Titus, and God blesses the ministry of these two men. How do we know he blesses the ministry of these two men? People are converted and churches are established. People are converted and churches are established. So the word of the gospel is powerfully effective for salvation and sanctification. Don't ever underestimate the word of God. When you speak to people about who God is, and you bring the scriptures into bear. God works in and through the word of God. He blesses the word. It's not up to us to convince somebody, to argue them into the kingdom. We certainly give a defense. But the heart is changed by the Lord. And so here we see God working on this island. And people are saved. People are converted. And again, they go from being one who is not a Christian to one who is a Christian. And I said last week, and I'll say it again. This doctrine of God's sovereignty over the proclamation of his word and the application of it should motivate us to be people of prayer. So that throughout the week, you should be praying for me, for Charles, as we make preparation. You should be praying for God to bless that word, for the conversion of the lost. You should be praying for conversion to take place. Start this afternoon. Pray every day for the efficacy of the Word of God in our own lives and the lives of those around us that we may see Him working as He did at Crete. That's what we want to see. God working in great ways through people being converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing we looked at was the priority of the gospel. And as I said last week, the most important message you will ever hear is the story of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most important question you'll ever answer is what will you do with the gospel that you have heard? To reject it is to ensure condemnation. To accept it is to ensure, without a doubt, everlasting life, living at peace with God as we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the church has been given the responsibility of handing out the gospel, of administering the gospel, and that is exactly what Paul and Titus were doing. And here in this text this evening, this morning, we're going to look at the fact that God has equipped people to serve as elders in his church. What happens to see this, because the church needs shepherds. The church needs shepherds, which includes being instructed in the word of God. God is pleased to call and equip certain men to the office of eldership in order that they may serve him. In order that they may serve faithfully, administering the word of God and, and seeing to it are the needs of the others. Three things this morning. Which I don't know if we'll get them all covered or not because it's rather lengthy, but we'll see. Uh, the elders in the church are necessary according to the dictates of God. And secondly, the elders in the church must possess certain qualifications as ordered by God. And the third thing, elders in the church are necessary for the health of the church. In the first place, then, elders in the church are necessary according to the dictates of God. The Apostle Paul left Titus in Crete for a specific reason. And he tells us here the reason he left him there was in order that those who have been converted, those churches that had been established, may have elders appointed to instruct and govern the people that were in those churches. In the providence of God, listen to this, in the providence of God, people are converted. In God's providence, he appoints men to administer to the needs of the people. The eldership should never be a power trip. 
If somebody's got that idea, they, they should not be an officer. It is a servant's position. Those who serve in the church as elders are servants to Christ and servants to the people of God. As the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Titus is left with this awesome responsibility of taking care of that which has been left undone. Uh, something that needed to be corrected. Paul left for some reason. We don't know why. But he left and went on to another place and left there things unfinished. So it's the task of Titus to go about and appoint elders in the churches. Now, we don't appoint elders here. But Titus was an evangelist. These churches needed elders. And so it's Titus' position to go and appoint them. In our church, you look at men who possess certain qualities. You look at men who can teach. You look at men who are teaching. You look at men who care for the people, who love the people, who have pastors' hearts. And over time, they reveal themselves as to whether or not God has called them. And there should be an inward call in the life of a man who does desire to hold the office. It says in in 1 Timothy 3 that it is a good thing to aspire to the office of elder. And I'm going to talk about that at the other service as well. As a young man here in the congregation who perhaps have never even thought of expiring to the office of elder. And yet we need younger men to be in the position of holding that office in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The younger people in the church are the future of the church. Younger people in the church are the future of the church. And so we need to be praying for God to bless us with that. Pleading with God to bless us with that. So the the task that Titus is to do is to appoint leadership and to appoint good leadership in the church. Not just anybody, but someone who he is convinced will be do well in that office and hold the office with a good conscience and hold it with soberness and seriousness. If I may read this quote to you, this is from who has become one of my favorite preachers. I've never met the man. He's my age, but he looks a whole lot younger than I do. I don't understand that. Alistair Begg, he said this, Good leadership in the church is absolutely essential, for if the leadership in the church is wrong, then everything else in the church would be wrong as well. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. As goes the king, so goes the nation. The last thing he says, But it has been noted that most unsolved problems in the church can be traced to the defective leadership almost without exception. Because of the importance of the office, God has given guidelines and descriptions of the type of people that we are to look for who are to hold the office. And these qualifications that I'm going to go over in just a moment did not come from a church council. They were not invented somewhere along the way. They were given by inspiration of God to the Apostle Paul, who in turn gave them to Timothy. It is an awesome responsibility to be an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be entered into lightly at all. And you remember uh, what we read in James, that teachers shall incur stricter judgment. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I think in in the book of Corinthians, that he came with fear and trembling. He's been given the responsibility of preaching the word of God, and he comes to them then with a sense of the great awareness and responsibility that he has to preach the gospel. So the second thing is, elders in the church must possess certain qualifications, 
as ordered by God's word. And what we're going to do first is look at the negative things, what they are not to be, and then to look at the positive things. Well, in the first place, he is not to be arrogant or self-willed. An arrogant Christian is an oxymoron. Now, why anybody, if you think about this, why anyone who is a Christian would have an inflated opinion of himself doesn't make any sense. The Bible speaks to it. And I'm not talking about having some sort of inferiority complex. Well, I'm nothing. I can't do anything. That's not what this is talking about. You know what gifts God has given you. You use those gifts for the good of the people of God and for the glory of Christ. You use the gifts God has given to you. And if you don't know what your gift is, ask God to reveal it to you. Ask other people around you. So it is really uh, inconsistent, illogical, uh, that someone who has been called into a relationship with God through Christ, much less an officer, would be arrogant. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Very clear in Scripture. And so that the one who would serve in the office of elder must not be one who is arrogant and makes his way through meetings by bullying his way to get the point that he wants done across. And that nobody else has any good ideas. Because the arrogant man thinks he's always right. And no one else is possibly as smart as the arrogant individual is. The second thing he says, he is not to be quick-tempered. Every Christian should have holy anger against sin. When we hear somebody berate our God, it should offend us. It should make us angry. Be angry, we read in the Scriptures, and do not sin. If someone criticized your child, if someone criticized your wife, to your face, more than likely, those are fighting words. You see what I'm saying? More than likely, you would get angry with that. We should have the same passion for the integrity of God's name that we should become angry when we see people willy-nilly take his name in vain. You're talking about my God. You're talking about the Creator. You're talking about the hope of Israel, the true Israel being the church. That's who you're talking about. And you're using his name in such a flippant way. And you're saying things that just are not true. They're contrary to what I know to be real and true. So we should have a, a desire uh, and a passion for the glory of Christ. However, someone who has a short fuse... Someone who gets inflamed easily should not be an elder, as described here in the Scriptures. If you've ever been to a session meeting, and I'm not saying I have, where someone gets very, very angry, it's unsettling. Because we're not supposed to do that. We're not called to that. We're called to the very opposite, to hold ourselves in humility and not... And anger and being quick-tempered. What a nightmare to have such a man on a session. There was a meeting in, Had- in well, the meeting took place in Hattiesburg. 
But it was about a church in Ellisville, Mississippi, something that was going on there. And the congregation, most of the people left, they were having this meeting. And one of the guys from the church was a farmer. And one of the guys from the church was a pretty big guy. And he went over to one of the teaching elders and looked down at him. He was standing up and said, uh, have you ever been throwed? He took his glasses off, looked at him and says, no, and I'm not going to be thrown now. You see, that type of thing should not be happening. They're supposed to be brothers in Christ. They're supposed to be able to discuss things rationally without giving way to anger. But in that case, it didn't happen. So the one who is quick-tempered is one who should not be an elder. He is not to be a drunkard. He is not to give himself to the abuse of alcohol. There's nothing wrong with drinking. It's clear in Scripture. But it is something wrong with giving way to it so that it becomes something that controls us. The misuse of it is forbidden. He's not to be violent. A violent individual, uh, and I don't know if you know this or not, but in Korea, South Korea, police have to be called into presbytery meetings. They start kung fuing one another. They get into physical fights. That's not, I'm not making that up. It happens where they get so passionate about their position that they actually get into physical fisticuffs and the police have to be called in to stop the fights. I wonder how they excuse that. There's no excuse for it. For the elders not to be one who was given to violence, who was given to fighting. In Timothy, it says he's not to be pugnacious. And again, one who is given to quarreling or fighting. If you see that characteristic in a man, if you see that this one is given to fighting and being pugnacious and violent, then he should never be considered to hold the office of the elder. He is not to be greedy for gain. We live in a very, very blessed time in this country. I know we're facing challenges. I know those challenges are difficult. I know sometimes they're even scary. But we are abundantly blessed with physical material things. 1 Timothy 3.3 says he is not to be a lover of money. You remember uh, in... um, Another place in Scripture where Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, in both cases, here in Titus and in 1 Timothy 3, he gives this warning. He is not to be greedy for gain. What would this person be like? They'd never have enough money. They would never be satisfied with where they were financially. They would always be wanting more and more, and he would be willing to bully, to take advantage, to manipulate a situation to his advantage, if it would help him financially. That's what he is talking about here in this text, cheating someone who perhaps is ignorant over the value of something. I don't know how many of you ever watched Pawn Stars. Anybody ever seen Pawn Stars? Raise your hand if you've seen Pawn Stars. Some have. Uh, it's about a pawn shop in Las Vegas. And it's run by this family. And the interesting thing is that they're 
the value of things that are brought in, well, sometimes you think it would be worth a whole lot of money, it's worth nothing. Uh, someone brought in a cigar box that was been on the desk of JFK that sold for about a half million dollars. There was nothing that sold for more than that. Well, this girl came into his shop, and Rick, who was the owner, was talking to her, and she had this beautiful piece of jewelry, and it looked like an insect. It was gold, had diamonds and stuff on it, and she said to him, would you give me $2,000 for this? He said this, I would, but I won't because I have a conscience. It was Tiffany. He gave her $18,000 for that piece of jewelry, which was a bug. A big bug, but it was a bug. And uh, she was flabbergasted. She had no idea. He could have said, yeah, I'll give you $1,500 for it. I can't, I can't go to, but $1,500, i will give you that for it. All the time knowing that he was cheating her, but he didn't do that. He said, I have a conscience. Well, I think he certainly likes making money. And that's his business. But he didn't demonstrate there a love for money that would drive him to the point of cheating this girl out of getting what it was that this item was worth. So loving money and inordinate affection for money is contrary to not simply that of an officer, but contrary to what we should be as Christians as well. So these are the things he's not to be like. These are the things he's not to do. And if you see these things in the life of an individual, then you know that they're not qualified for the office. And we recognize that if we really hardcore follow these to a wooden position, nobody can be an elder. Because we all have failures. We all slip at places. Uh, sometimes we don't do the things that we should do. Sometimes I don't do the things I should do. As an elder, sometimes I don't do something because of a lack of wisdom and how to proceed and what to do exactly. But the overall look or overall picture should be what is described here in this text in Titus. Well, <clears throat> what is he supposed to be then? Well, the positive things, he's supposed to be above reproach. That doesn't mean... He's supposed to be sinless. There's no such thing as someone who is sinless. It doesn't mean that at all. Again, if it did, then no one can serve as an elder in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is that he is one who is demonstrated that he loves Christ and that he's striving to be what God calls him to be. He's striving to be godly. He is not a womanizer. He's not a scoundrel. He's not a cheat. He's not one who has a bad reputation among his neighbors. Well, brother, he is above reproach. If I may leave, I'll read this to you. First uh, John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Here it is. He's, he's, he can't claim to be sinless. And that's not what the text is saying. First John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We had a man who used to come to this church, I've told you this before, who claimed to be sinless. He also claimed Jesus sinned until he was 30. 
until he was baptized. That's heresy. And he was very disruptive. Always. Not in, not in worship. He didn't disrupt worship, but he did his classes. And Ken one time got very, very frustrated with him. Because he was convinced that he was without sin. And that this text in 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 10, did not apply to him. If I may read this to you. He should be a man against whom no charge of morality or of holding false doctrine is alleged. His conduct should be irreprehensible or irreproachable. Undoubtedly means that if any charge could be brought against him, implying moral Mismoral conduct, he is not fit for the office. He should be a man of irreproachable character of truth, honesty, chastity, and general uprightness. He is to be the husband of one wife, we read here in the text. Now, what does this mean? Well, one thing that we know it means, it means he can't be a polygamist. In this day and age, polygamy was practiced by people who were converted. It was the way it was. So we know that this is a man who cannot have more than one wife. Well, what about a man who is widowed? If he marries, he is going to have a second wife. What about a man who is widowed? We know from Scripture that if a man is widowed, he is free to marry again, so that death breaks the bond of marriage. You can't be married to someone who's dead. And so if a man is widowed, he might be able to marry again. Well, what about a man who is divorced? Is a man who is divorced, does that mean he can never serve as an elder? It depends. It depends on the reason for the divorce. There are such things as biblical divorces. There are such things as unbiblical divorces. I remember Dr. Knight, who has a commentary out on Titus, I remember him saying to our class, and because there was a man uh, in St. Louis that found out he had had an affair, and Dr. Knight said, as far as he was concerned, he was excluded forever. He said, unless it's been 10 or 15 years, and he's proven himself over that time to be faithful. But uh, some people are of the position that if you are divorced, no matter what the reason, you shouldn't be an elder in the church. But we have to look at what Scripture says, not opinions, but what the Bible says. And again, uh, in Matthew, where Jesus talks about this, he says that, uh, except for the cause of unchastity. That's the only reason for divorce there, except for the cause of unchastity. And then again, desertion is talked about in 1 Corinthians. And so, uh, Dr. Knight, again, by, by inference, it demands the same sexual purity. And talking about if, if a man's single, can he be a pastor? Can he be ordained if he's not married? Because the text says a husband and one wife. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, Alistair Begg does not think it means that. Dr. Knight did not think it means that. What it means is if he is married, that this is what his home life has to be like. He says this. Uh, this, again, Dr. Knight, by inference, it demands the same sexual purity of an unmarried man who is no more ruled out by this requirement than is a man who has less than two children. His children, it says in the text. Well, Dr. Knight says if he has less than one child, he's not excluded from it. There is time to quit. And I'm not through. 
but I've got 10 minutes. So I can't keep going. Quickly. Very quickly. His children are to be believers, it says here in the text. Uh, in Timothy, it talks about that uh, he is to keep them under control. And I think that from what I've read, that that's basically what it means. Another way to interpret this instead of being believers is they are to be faithful. Uh, the word pista is used uh, in verse 6. All believers, it can be used to translate faithful. They all must be, we, as Christians, all must be faithful. So his children then, his household is not one where it runs havoc. As you look at the man and you look at the man's children, you see that they are polite. They are well behaved. They respect their parents. One thing that Dr. Knight did say, I think, uh, this is back in seminary. That children, if they're at home, need to be coming to worship, need to be showing respect to God, and be doing that until they leave the house. Because once they're uh, grown and gone, uh, they're not on your roof anymore. But Alistair Begg did say something that I thought was, was good, and that is this, you are always the parents of your children. And the children should always respect their parents. Even after they're grown and gone, honor your father and your mother. Doesn't say honor your father and your mother until you leave home. Doesn't say it at all. Honor your father and your mother. You don't put a time limit on it. You recognize they get married and they leave and they have responsibility to their home, but they still are to honor their parents. And that means one thing when they get old, when we get old, that they take care of us in some fashion or another. That's honoring your parents. I tell you something that was, and I got to stop. Uh, that um, Tim Hoke's wife, wonderful, absolutely wonderful, godly woman, Cherry. I love it when they come to town. Uh, we we normally go out and get Mexican food because you can't get Mexican food in Africa. She had two siblings. Both of them had some significant problems, and she's taking care of her sister. Her sister lives with her in Africa. Her sister lived with the mother until the mother died. She had a brother that was in a nursing home. He died during COVID, not from COVID. He died because they wouldn't let her in to see him and take care of him. He died from neglect, if you will, because they would not let her in to take care of him, and he was terribly lonely. Tim Hoke said to me this. Now, listen to this. The best way she can honor her parents is by taking care of her sister. And her brother, and to the Lord, called him home. So, that relationship should be seen in the house of those who are going to be elders, that their children are under control. And all of this, as we recognize we have failings in all of these things, to one degree or another, uh, we have that hope of the great shepherd, the great elder, if you will, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his church. Everything that you do, everything that you say, every act that you do in the church, you ask yourself this, is this pleasing to Christ? Is this pleasing to the one whose church it is? Or is it not pleasing to him? Because my passion is to please him. So... I would encourage you to be in prayer for this church. As we go through this, we'll finish it next Lord's Day. 
It was several pages. I knew this was going to happen, but I didn't know how to cut it down to make it short enough without being sort of untrue to the text. Uh, but um, to recognize the seriousness of holding the office and to recognize that all, all elders have flaws and failings. And so we pray for them. And then also that God, the ultimate blessing of the church, comes from Christ, not from elders. It comes from Jesus. So we pray to that end. Let's pray.